Amen. We have a God who is with us, who is a healer and who is a provider, who is more than enough and who meets all of our needs. And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. If you're visiting, we're glad you're here. We're going to continue our journey uh, this month through the Gospel of Mark. And so go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 2. And while you're turning to Mark chapter 2, I want to set the stage a little bit. Uh, You see, this morning our text is about real people in a real place at a real time. And so I think that when we don't have details sometimes about a place, our imaginations tend to fill those details in. And the way that we picture a place begins to shape our understanding of that story, of that narrative. And so this morning I want to fill in the details of that place a little bit for you. Nate, can I get that first slide, uh, please? So, um, here we have a picture of the, the region of Galilee, and specifically this, the town of Capernaum. And this is where we're going to be in our text this morning. Now, to give you a little sense of the scale, here's the, uh, the scale down here. Anybody know how, how far 30 kilometers is? We don't really do kilometers, right? Uh, so that's about 18.6 miles there to give you a sense of the scale. And so what that means is that the Sea of Galilee here, from its north shore down to its south shore, is about 10 miles. Uh, and then if you go across the Sea of Galilee, from its west shore to its east shore, is about five miles. And you know, you'll notice here that Nazareth, the town where Jesus is from, is also there in Galilee. Now, in Mark 1.14, Uh, It says that Jesus comes into the region of Galilee and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And then here's the thing that we miss. He stays in the region of Galilee from Mark 1.14 all the way to Mark 8.26, right? The majority of Jesus' earthly ministry is in this region of the world, this dusty patch of earth here in the Middle East. And at at, uh, Mark 8.27, he begins his journey to Jerusalem, which is down here where where he'll be crucified. Okay? So, when Jesus is in the region of Galilee... His, actually, keep, keep it up, Nate. Um, when Jesus is in the, the region of Galilee, uh, his home base is in this town of Capernaum. And Capernaum is here on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum, because it's on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, is a fishing town. It's a fishing town. And if you've been with us in past weeks, you've seen how in Mark 1, we have a typical day in Jesus's ministry where he's proclaiming the gospel, right? He's preaching and teaching. Typically, he goes into the synagogue to proclaim the gospel. And do you remember what else he's doing? He's healing the sick, and then he's casting out demons. That's a typical day in Jesus's life, and it's set in the town of Capernaum. Now, how big do you think Capernaum is? I mean, if you, if you had to guess, what, what would be the population of Capernaum? Well, 
Capernaum has a population, scholars estimate, of about 1,500 people. Now that's somewhere between the size of Flora, Mississippi, which uh, last count, uh, census in 2010, had 1,886 uh, members in that community, and the membership here at Redeemer, which last time I checked this morning on Breeze, you'd know I'd get a pre plug for Breeze in here, right, uh, was 1139. So somewhere between the population of Flora, Mississippi and the membership of Redeemer, we have the population of this small town of Capernaum there. So get this, Jesus spends the majority of his earthly ministry in a sleepy fishing town of about 1,500 people, and he changes the world. That's our context for this morning, the region of Galilee in the town of Capernaum. Thanks, Nate. So with that in mind, let's turn to our text here in Mark chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 12 this morning. Let's focus our attention on God's word. And when he returned, that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now, by the way, that's probably not Jesus' home since Jesus doesn't have a home. This is literally in the Greek, at a house, um, and probably it's Peter's mother-in-law's house. And, verse 2, many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Or actually in the Greek, the word order there is son, forgiven are your sins. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So far, God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word, may he write its eternal truth upon all of our hearts. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, we're given a picture of your Son and our Savior. And Father, we want to know him more. We want to know him better. 
And so I pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would open our hearts, that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit, and through the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at our passage under three headings, under three headings. In verses one through five, we're going to see a confusing diagnosis. And then in verses six through eight, we're going to see a controversial question. And then in verses nine through 12, we're going to see a costly wholeness. So a confusing diagnosis, a controversial question, and a costly wholeness. So first of all, a confusing diagnosis here in verses 1 through 5. So this story is actually the fifth of five healing narratives, right? Nate, can you get that next or the next two slides uh, up here? So this is the fifth of five healing narratives. So the first three little chunks of text here happen in Capernaum. And in verses 23 through 28, Jesus casts out an unclean spirit. And this becomes a paradigm, right? So from here on out, whenever you see Jesus driving out an unclean spirit, driving out a demon, it's not just a, a quick cut and dry thing. There's kind of a picture. There are details that go along with this. And this gives you a paradigm here in this first healing story. And then in verses 29 through 31, you have the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, right? The fever leaves her. And this is another paradigm. Like th this is kind of the template for Jesus to heal people. There's an interaction, there's touch, the fever leaves her. And then you have two montages. The first montage here, you know, picture your 30-second commercial spinning through. In verses 32 through 34 in Capernaum, Jesus is healing the sick, and then he's casting out demons, and Jesus is at work. And then he goes throughout Galilee in verses 39 through 45, and here he's preaching, and he's casting out demons, and he's healing the leper. And then we get to our text this morning in verses 1 through 5 and 11 and 12 show Jesus healing the paralytic. And so as Jesus, thanks Nate, so as Jesus is healing all of these different people, these five different healing narratives, this healing shows that the kingdom of God is breaking in. And as the kingdom of God is breaking in, Jesus is demonstrating his authority against sickness, right, as he heals and the sickness leaves. And Jesus is demonstrating his authority against Satan as he casts out demons and they leave, right? There's this wholeness in the kingdom that's both physical, right, physical healing and spiritual. There's spiritual healing and those things go together. And each of the previous four stories, there, there was a rhythm, there was a pattern, right? The, the person comes before Jesus, and Jesus sees their sickness, and he heals them. Or the person comes before Jesus, and he sees that they're possessed by a demon, and he casts the demon out. And so when you get to our text this morning, our text tends to be a little bit jarring, 
right? You expect the paralytic to come, right? And for Jesus to see the paralytic and what? For Jesus to heal the paralytic. And so as we get to our text this morning, you see that Jesus is preaching in verse 2. He's preaching the word. You expect him to be preaching the word, right? That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus is about. And then you see that a crowd is gathered, and that doesn't surprise you either because there are oftentimes crowds gathered as Jesus is preaching. And then you see the faith. And you'll notice that the text says that this is the faith of the four friends. And we tend to think that this is like, you know, when we think of faith, what do we think of? We think of a faith that's a saving faith, right? That's not what's going on here. The faith of the four friends is the same kind of faith that the leper expressed back in Mark 140. Do you remember what he says in Mark 140? Jesus, if you're willing, you can what? You can make me clean, right? So their faith here isn't a saving faith. It's just a confidence that Jesus can do again what he's done many times before. And so all of these things are expected and normal. And so Jesus sees the paralytic and we're expecting Jesus to heal the paralytic. That's not what you get. Look at verse 5. What do you get instead? And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, how would you respond, right? Why is the paralytic there? Because he's heard that person after person after person has been delivered from their sickness, right? So the friends get together and they say, hey, we've got this great idea. You've been a paralytic all your life. We're going to go see Jesus. And all of a sudden, his anticipation begins to build, right? Maybe I'll finally get to take that first step. Maybe I'll have that freedom that I've been longing for all my life. You know, maybe I can go to the kitchen, right, and get some milk all by myself, right? There's that anticipation that's building up. And what does Jesus say? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, how would you respond in that moment? Well, if it were me, and if I were being honest with you, I'd, uh, I'd probably say something like what? Well, Jesus, I was kind of hoping to walk. That This really isn't what I was looking for, right? I mean, y- y- you've, you've been there, right? Um, when I was, uh, so I grew up in a home uh, where I had two parents who loved me, and they loved to give gifts, right? And so I was about to turn 16, and when you're 16, what are you kind of hoping you're getting, right? A car, yeah. And so my parents, about two months in advance, said, hey, son, uh, you know, we've, we've put in a special order today. Uh, and, and then a little bit later, hey, you know, we had to give some specific, uh, some specific things a- about this order, right? And so the anticipation's beginning to build and grow, and all of a sudden my 16th birthday comes, and they walk me into the living room, and they say, here's your gift, son, <clears throat> and it's a statue. It's about this tall of me <clears throat> that they had to commission two months in advance with all, it's kind of awkward having a statue of yourself, right? And it wasn't a car. I mean, right? Like, I wanted a car. <clears throat> it's still around somewhere. Um, they try, anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, but my parents knew, right, that that stage of my life, 
a car was not what was best for me. They, they knew me maybe even better than I knew myself. And they, they gave me, well, they gave me this other gift. But that's a whole other They didn't give me a car. And that was the right thing for me. You see, Jesus comes to the paralytic and he says, My son, I know that you want to walk. I see your suffering. I see your pain. I see your affliction. But there's something greater that you need. I see you completely. I know you down to the very depths of your soul. And I know you better than you know yourself. And there is something that you need so much more than walking. And isn't that so often what Jesus says to us? You've been there, haven't you? You plead and ask and beg again and again. Jesus, would you please give, give me this? Jesus, would you please take that away? And he says what? He says no. And then later, sometimes you're able to look back and say, you know, Jesus knew in that moment what was best for me. That if I had gotten what I would have asked for, my life would have been different in a bad way. Right? We can see God's sovereign grace. You see, the request of the paralytic didn't go deep enough. Of course, someone who's paralyzed wants to walk, right? But that's not where anyone's going to find true happiness and lasting satisfaction. We may wish to be strong or beautiful or smart or famous, but all of those things are going to fade, right? Your physical strength dissipates over time. Your beauty eventually wrinkles. Your mind at the end of life, you're going to have trouble remembering things, and fame just lasts for a minute, right? These things will all fade. But those longings that we have, those longings are all pointing to a deeper longing, to a, a true longing, to your one true need. We, we tend to think, if I could just have this, right, th then I'd be okay, or if I could just do that, then I'd be somebody, or if I could just know this person, then I'd belong. But here's the diagnosis of the king who knows you down to the depths of your soul and knows you even better than you know yourself. He says, my child, your greatest need is for your sins to be forgiven. Your greatest need is to be moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. To be moved from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. You need a salvation that will never fade away and an inheritance that will never spoil. I mean, what good is it to walk, right, if you're walking in the wrong direction? If you're walking in darkness? If you're walking away from the Lord? You see, what we need is to be forgiven from our sins. And it's only in that forgiveness that Jesus gives us that we'll find true happiness and lasting satisfaction. And it's only in that salvation that you'll be okay and that you'll be somebody and that you'll belong. And here's the thing. You can't save yourself any more than that paralytic could stand up and walk. And that's the diagnosis 
of the king, right? He sees your deepest need. It's a confusing diagnosis. It's not what you'd expect, but it's what your heart truly needs. That's a confusing diagnosis, verses 1 through 5. But then secondly, we have a controversial question, verses 6 through 8. Now, if you've been along as Albert's talked about Mark, Albert has explained that one of the things that Mark likes to do is use a literary structure that's kind of like a sandwich, right? You've got these two pieces, and then you've got two pieces of bread, maybe, and in the middle, you've got the meat, right? Well, and that's exactly how this passage plays out. In verses 1 through 5, uh, and then 11 and 12, you've got the healing narrative, right? So that's these, the, the top and bottom. And in the middle, there's a controversy narrative. And so what's happening is uh, Mark is linking these five stories together with the, with the previous four healing stories, right? That's the one version. And then he's linking it with the first of five controversy stories, okay? So these controversy stories are going to continue in Mark. So Nate, if we can get the controversy slide up here. So this is simultaneously the fifth of five healing stories and the first of five controversy stories in that sandwich structure. And the, the controversies are, walk through like this. You've got the controversy over the forgiveness of sins, and the controversy over eating with sinners, and then a controversy over fasting, and a controversy over Sabbath. You've got two controversies over Sabbath there. Thanks, Nate. So this is the first of five controversy stories. Now, there's a lot of conflict in Mark, right? Mark is about the coming kingdom. And so as the kingdom of God is breaking in, you see that kingdom of God conflicting with the kingdom of Satan. And we've seen this in Mark 1 a couple of times, right? Remember back in Mark 1, verse 12, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness, and then what happens, right? Verse 13, that he's tempted by Satan, for 40 days, right? And what's that? That's a conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And then every time, right, that Jesus casts out a demon, that's a conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, right? But Jesus' conflict when we get to Mark chapter 2 isn't quite what you'd expect, right? You get to Mark chapter 2, and you find out that, who's the conflict with here? It's not, it's not demons. It's not Satan. Verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, right? So the conflict is with the scribes. These are the religious leaders of the day. They're the seminary professors and the pastors and the elders, right? These are the people whose vocation it was to study the scriptures. They should have been the most ready and the most prepared to see Jesus for who he was. And yet they miss Jesus completely. You see, here's the thing. You can know a lot about your Bible and you can even be a leader of God's people, and you can still miss Jesus. Now, 
The conflict with the scribes and then later the Pharisees and other religious leaders, through these five controversy narratives, it escalates. And so it begins here with the scribes questioning in their hearts, right? It's an internal struggle. But you get to Mark chapter 3 and verse 6, right? So a chapter later, and now all of a sudden the scribes and the religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus. The disciples follow after Jesus when he's presented as, as the Son of God. But the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, they want to kill Jesus. And what's at the heart of the controversy narrative? What's the question that's on the heart of the scribes there? We'll start at verse 5 for a little bit of context. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Get this, they don't even say it out loud, right? But Jesus perceives it. And what is it they say? Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone. Now, the scribes get this last part right, right? Because only God can forgive sins. Now, of course, you can forgive somebody if they sin against you, right? Do you guys practice this at your house? Because we practice it all the time. Girl A offends girl B, right? Girl B is kind of upset, and so girl A has to do what? She has to ask for forgiveness, and then girl B forgives her, right? And so, yeah, we, we can forgive those offenses that are against us. But when we're thinking about all of the offenses over life, do you remember what David says in Psalm 51? Now, David, of course, had sinned against Bathsheba and against Uriah, right? But what does David say in Psalm 51, verse 4? He says, against you and you only have I sinned. You see, our sins are ultimately and supremely and finally against God. And if our sins are against God, then only God can forgive sins. Let, let, me, let me walk that out for you a little bit. Let's say that you have three guys, okay? You've got Kevin, and you've got Russell, and you've got LeBron, okay? And let's say that Kevin deeply offends Russell. Like a totally hypothetical situation, right? And, and Russell, well, he, he's a bit of a hothead. There's no way that he's going to forgive Kevin. But Kevin's kind of tender, right? And so Kevin says to Russell, hey, hey, Russell, would you forgive me? And then LeBron jumps in and he says, yo, Kevin, I forgive you, right? That doesn't work. Why? Because Kevin's offense was against Russell, right? So LeBron can't forgive Kevin. If all of our sins are supremely and ultimately and finally against God, then only God can forgive our sins. Now, if God is the only one who can forgive sins, then Jesus must be blaspheming, right? Jesus is claiming to do something that only God can do. And so here's the controversial question. Can Jesus forgive sins? Does Jesus have the authority to forgive sins? And that's a really important question. 
You see, deep down, we're all looking for forgiveness, right? Wise people everywhere from the very earliest cultures have known that wherever there's an offense in a relationship, payment is needed for restitution or repair, right? Whenever there's an offense, there's some sort of payment, there's some sort of cost that has to be made. Now, you see this in the Old Testament law code. So in Exodus chapter 21, when it comes to your physical health, if, if, you're, if you experience bodily harm, this is where we get the lex talionis, right? God's code in, in Exodus chapter 21 says, a life for a life, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a wound for a wound, a burn for a burn, a stripe for a stripe. There's equal payment, right, is the idea in the Lex Talionis. But then you turn the page to Exodus chapter 22, and you see this idea of repayment when it comes to material things, okay? So um, it talks about oxen and it talks about sheep, okay? So let's say that I were to uh, go to Flora and, uh, and take one, one of the Nesikos' oxen. Do you guys have oxen? Cows count? I mean, that's close enough, right? So if that were discovered in the Old Testament law code, then, then what would happen is I would have to give back that cow, that oxen, right? And then I'd have to take one of my cows, which we don't have, take one of my cows and give him that cow, that oxen too, right? So he gets twice back what I took from him. Same thing's true of sheep, right? If I take a sheep, I have to give him two sheep back. But where it gets interesting in this law code is uh, you keep reading in that passage, and let's say that I'd taken that oxen home and I had, I had an ox burger, right? So now, now I can't give that ox back. Uh, well, at that point, I have to come up with five oxen, right, to repay because I can no longer give back uh, Matthew's oxen here. Or if I took one of his sheep and I had that lamb chop that I'd been really looking forward to, right? Well, I can no longer give back that sheep, so I have to give back four sheep. Apparently, they liked ox burgers more uh, than lamb chops that way. But what's the idea here? That whenever there's an offense, there always has to be some sort of payment. You see, transgression, every transgression creates what Everett Worthington calls an injustice gap. And if you've, if you've suffered, if you've suffered some horrible wrong, you've felt this, right? If someone has done something horrible to you, it's deeply human to, to want them to have to pay for it, right? Somebody has to pay. You see, transgression always has a cost. And in order for that relationship to be restored, someone has to pay the cost. But it's not just if you've been offended. You also kind of know this if you're, if you're the offending party, right? E even from, from the earliest days. Like, go back to when you were six 
and you stole your sister's life-size teddy bear, hypothetical story, and you took that life-size teddy bear and tried to hide it in your room, right? So you put it under your covers and there's that huge teddy bear in, in your room and, and then you're found out. It's kind of hard to hide that huge teddy bear <clears throat> that way. So, so you're found out and your parents make you do what? You got to give the teddy bear back. But you knew, right, deep down in your heart that in order to make things right with your sister, you needed to give the teddy bear back because a transgression always has a cost. And in order for the relationship to be restored, someone has to pay that cost. So that's the controversial question. Can Jesus forgive sins? And then that leads, thirdly, to a costly wholeness in verses 9 through 12. So, Jesus sees that they're wrestling with these questions in their heart, and he poses this question. Look at verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? So the emphasis here is on say. Which is easier to say? Well, I think scholars would say that which is easier to say? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Well, if you say rise, get up, and walk, there's sort of immediate accountability there, right? Either dude gets up and walks or he doesn't. At that point, the verdict's in. So you can kind of slide under the radar, right? So if you say, hey, your sins are forgiven, are they forgiven? Eh, you know, maybe, maybe not. But there's no, there's no accountability uh, there at that point. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus ties these two things together. He ties the unseen with the seen. Look at verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So Jesus is saying, when I do the thing that you can see, right, when the paralytic walks, I want you to know that I've also done the thing that you can't see. I've also forgiven his sins. And so when the paralytic gets up and walks, now there's visible, tangible evidence that his sins have been forgiven. Now you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now Jesus picks this title for himself very carefully. Did you catch it there in verse 11? The Son of Man. Where does that come from? Well, we see the Son of Man used 94 times in the book of Ezekiel. It's how God addresses the prophet Ezekiel. It's son of man. And literally, in the Hebrew, uh, man is Adam or Adam, right? And this is where C.S. Lewis gets in the Chronicles of Narnia. You know how Aslan is constantly referring to the children as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. It's something expressing that the prophet Ezekiel is deeply human, right? But that's not the imagery that Jesus is pulling on here. Jesus is pulling on what we've read already this morning in Daniel at chapter 7. Do you remember that 
the gospel of Mark is about the coming of the kingdom. And so as Jesus is going around proclaiming uh, the gospel, he's proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand, right? So it's that kingdom imagery. Nate, can we get 713 here? So here's the picture in Daniel's vision in Daniel 7. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of God, the ancient of days, that's a picture of God, and was presented before him, okay? So one like a son of man is presented before the ancient of days. He's coming into the throne room, right? You can, you can see the picture. He's coming into the throne room, and he's about to be presented with something. He's about to be given something. And what is he given? Look at verse 14. And to him, that is to one like the son of man, was given what? Dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Thanks, Nate. So the Son of Man comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days. And the Son of Man receives from the Ancient of Days a dominion that's everlasting and a kingdom that will not be destroyed. And so Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. I'm the one to whom the Ancient of Days has given a kingdom. And you've already seen that in my kingdom I have dominion over Satan. That in my kingdom I have dominion over sickness. But I want you to know that the Ancient of Days has also given me dominion over sin. Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, I have dominion over Satan, over sickness, and over sin. And that's the kingdom wholeness that Jesus brings. And Mark is connecting that physical healing and that spiritual healing because physical healing and spiritual healing go together in the kingdom. Do you remember Jesus' pattern that we saw back in Mark 1 at Capernaum, right? He's healing the sick and he's casting out demons and he's proclaiming the gospel. And you see, as Jesus is healing the sick, his kingdom is being established. He's being given dominion over sickness. And as Jesus is casting out demons, right, he's being given dominion over the kingdom of Satan. His kingdom is being established against the kingdom of Satan. And as Jesus is proclaiming the gospel, his kingdom is being established against sin. And so with each mother-in-law healed and with each leper cleansed and with each paralytic walking, every time Jesus casts a demon out or sets a soul free, Jesus is giving us a picture. He's making a promise of a wholeness that one day will be ours. It's the wholeness of the kingdom. You see, one day we'll be healed body and soul, completely, finally, and irreversibly. One day, 
all of those scars, all of those wounds will be made beautiful. And your deepest longing, your one true need will be fulfilled. One day your greatest loss, all of your losses will be redeemed. And your last tear will be wiped away. And one day Jesus will say to your soul, rise, pick up your mat and come home. And then then you will be whole. And that's the wholeness of the kingdom. But I want you to know that wholeness comes at a great cost. Do you remember when Jesus said, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? It might have been easier for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven. But it was infinitely harder for him to do. Remember, every transgression has a cost. And so Jesus knew exactly what that forgiveness would cost him. Jesus knew that for the Father to forgive sin, justice had to be met. Do you remember that Jesus says the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins? Where did that authority come from? Twelve of the thirteen remaining times that Jesus addresses himself with this title as the Son of Man, he's talking about how the Son of Man must suffer and die. And that's how his kingdom has dominion over sin. As the Son of Man suffers and dies, he's given a dominion that is everlasting. He's given a kingdom that will never fade away. And he's given that kingdom that has dominion over sin. And so as Jesus looks at the paralytic, and as he looks at you and me, he sees transgression after transgression after transgression. And each transgression has a cost. And someone has to pay that cost. And so as he says, my child, your sins are forgiven. What he's really saying is my child. I love you so completely, so fully, so deeply that I am willing to be the one, that I will pay the cost for your sins. And then you will be made whole. That's the wholeness of the kingdom. And that wholeness is ours, and one day finally will be ours, as Jesus says to each of our souls, rise. Take up your bed and come home. In the name of the Father and of the Son. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we long for one day when everything broken will be redeemed, when everything crooked will be set straight, when all of our ailments will be gone, when our tears will be wiped away. But most of all, Father, we long for the day 
that we will see you face to face because then we will finally be home and we will be made whole. Thank you that the forgiveness that you've given us is our truest and deepest need. And thank you for your son, the son of man, whose kingdom makes this possible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.